Let us return then for our time to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to look at the chapter in its totality, and I don't wish to highlight one particular verse that might be regarded as our text. Instead, we'll just look at the chapter and what we find there. The title I'd like to give to our meditation this morning is Testing Times. Testing Times. Just one or two uh, historical background facts that might help us to get where we want to go. Obviously, I'm sure we understand that the book of Daniel, its prominent theme is the fact that God is absolutely sovereign in all the affairs of mankind. He is sovereign. Now, Daniel was about 22 when he was taken captive along with his friends. And he was taken captive during the first deportation under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. And that happened around 606 BC. It was some time after that before Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. That took some time, and we'll consider that in a moment. But the first deportation of captives happened around 606 BC. And that's really where we find ourselves in chapter 1. And not long after that, Daniel made his stance that he would not be defiled by eating the king's food and drinking the king's wine. Chapter 2, we're about three years after that, about 603 BC. And what happened in chapter 2? Well, you know that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he couldn't remember the dream. And he called all his magicians and wise men, and they couldn't help him at all because they could not reveal what the dream was, and therefore they couldn't reveal the interpretation of the dream. And ultimately, Daniel heard about this, and Daniel, because he petitioned God, was able to find out what the dream was and to give the interpretation. And that's what we find there in Daniel chapter 2, and that's about 603 BC. It's important for us to realize that when we get to chapter 3, we're talking about 16 years after chapter 2. 16 years. And in that 16 years, what had happened? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar had gone to Jerusalem. He had destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. The captivity of Jerusalem was complete by this time, by chapter 3. And the indication is that here was Nebuchadnezzar full of pride in what he had done. And he wanted to vent his pride by making this great image. 
that the people were to bow down and worship. And in, in effect, he was really asking the people to bow down and worship him. That's what it was all about. And this was a massive image. It was about 90 feet high and about nine feet wide. And as someone has calculated, if your average man is about six feet, it's 15 times the size of an average man. And this was really to gratify his pride because he was the number one ruler and he knew it. And he wanted people to give him honor, glory, and reverence, and worship. And what we find here is actually what we find in our world today. This incident, of course, is thousands of years ago in history. But the principles here will be found in our modern-day society. As someone said, Quote, the world still wants God's people to conform to its standards and follow its practice. This is what we have here. The world still wants God's people to conform to its standards and follow its practice. And how are you going to fear? Testing times. Will you be like these three men? Or will you compromise? That's the reality. This is something you must ask yourself. Because this is upon us. And unless things change dramatically, it's going to be more and more a feature of modern day living. The world will want you to compromise. And are you going to do it? It's as simple and as clear as that. Well, we want to look at this passage. And we want to see what lessons we can derive for ourselves from it. The first thing I want to notice here is the three of them were in favor with the king. That's why we looked and had a brief summary of the first two chapters. They were in favor with the king. What do we find in chapter 2? As a result of Daniel being able to find out what the dream was and then to provide an interpretation of that dream, Daniel was promoted. But Daniel was one who didn't just look to himself he wanted others to be promoted also. And what do we find at the end of verse uh, chapter 2, verse 49? Then Daniel requested of the king, and he, set, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the fears of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So these three men were highly favored. They were highly favored because they belonged unto Daniel. They were somehow associated with Daniel. They were Daniel's associates. And Daniel was able to recommend these individuals that they would be good administrators, that they would be ideal. And they served the king in captivity well for some number of years, about 15 or 16 years they did this. 
This incident, therefore, sheds some light upon Nebuchadnezzar himself. What light does it show regarding Nebuchadnezzar? Well, after Daniel had discovered the dream and the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar said, The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. We find that in chapter 2, verse 47. Here the king, this pagan king, this idolater, makes a wonderful confession. A confession maybe that many Christians or so-called Christians wouldn't make today. That your God is the God of gods and a Lord of kings. And some people might say to us, therefore, surely this is a changed individual. Surely this is someone who knows something about the Lord God of Israel and that his heart has been changed. Well, what happened with Daniel did affect this individual to a certain extent, but we cannot say he was ever converted. The root of the matter was never in him. He had a wonderful experience, and God in some sense has spoken to this monarch because here was God's servant who was able to reveal the will, the, the dream, and to reveal an interpretation of that dream. And God had truly spoken to Nebuchadnezzar, showing him the stupidity and the futility of serving his own gods. And he makes this wonderful confession that your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But he's not my God. Your God. And what really what Nebuchadnezzar was doing here with this confession, he was simply adding the God of Israel, the Lord God himself, he was simply adding him to the plethora of other gods that he served. It was no problem to this idolater because he served many gods. And to add another one would make no difference to him. But the point I want to bring home to you today, friends, as we gather here in Partick, he had an experience. God spoke to him. God was gracious unto him. No doubt there was some kind of conviction upon it. But at the end of it, the root of the matter was not in him. He did not totally acknowledge the Lord God of Israel, and he did not forsake his evil ways. He simply added the God of Israel to the other gods that he worshipped and served. Where are we today then? Is the Lord our God? Can we say truly that a work of grace has begun in us? Is the root of the matter in us? Are we serving the one true and the living God? Or are we somewhat on the fence? Or are we got one feet in the world, one foot in the world, and another foot in the church? It's time for consecration. It's time to nail our colors to the mast. It's time to side with Jehovah, who's on the Lord's side. 
This is the day and age we're in. And when we're tested, friends, it will show who indeed we actually serve. Well, this also tells us something about the unbelieving world also. Because here was the unbelieving world. They were happy to make use of these wise men for a period of time, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There they were in their positions of power and authority and influence for around 15 or 16 years. And no doubt people were pleased with their performance. But the time came, friends, when the unbelieving world turned against them. This is what we find here, because you will notice that this test was aimed at the people of God. It was aimed at the Jews, because a true-hearted Jew could never undertake this. They could never bow down before an image, because it was against the law of God. It was something that was fixed to other peoples, to the other nations that they had conquered, this would not be a problem. They wouldn't bat an eyelid about this. But this was directly aimed at the people of God. And you will find that many of the things that are happening in society today are directly to attack the people of God. And if you're a Christian, you belong to God. You have been bought with a price. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has bought you. And you belong unto him. And you will find, or you may well find, that the unbelieving world will turn and test you. <laughs> The world still wants God's people to conform to its standards and follow its practices. This is what we find here. These people who were highly favored and who were left to worship their God for some time, but the time came when the test would come. The time came when the rubber was going to hit the road. And maybe that time has come for the people of God today. Secondly, we would notice, now they are tested. They're tested. This is what we find in chapter 3. Now the time has come when the test was going to meet them head on. As someone said, quote, The devil tempts us to destroy our faith, but God tests us to develop our faith. Because, and this is important, because a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Here they were in captivity, living a good life, having power, influence, a certain amount of freedom and wealth and prestige that came with the fact that they were governors of Babylon. But their faith had to be tested. And a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And this is where we are today, friends. They were tested, and we shall be tested. The people of God shall be tested in order that the reality of our faith might be made visible and clear, not to the Lord our God. No, he knows the state of our hearts. He knows whether there's real faith in us or not. He knows if the root of the matter is in us or not. 
But it is for our benefit. It is for the Christian's benefit that our faith is tested. Paul's faith withers in times of trial. But true faith takes deeper root, grows, and above all, it brings glory to God. Are we ready then? Do we think that somehow we'll escape? Many of our brethren in other parts of the world know this firsthand. They know what it is to be truly tested and tried. Many people die for their faith. They're not rescued like these individuals were. We cannot think for one moment that this will be the portion of everyone who seeks to live in loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they, they will be miraculously delivered. We cannot assume that, but we can assume that we will be tested, and maybe we have been tested, and maybe you know something about it. But maybe you're still strangers to it. But be assured, we're in a time of testing. What was the test? What was their particular test? Well, the test is quite easy for us to determine. It's not a difficult thing. It was, would they commit idolatry? You know the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second one is closely related to it. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. There, that two commandments are clear, that you're only to worship the one true and the living God and no other God, and you're to worship him in the way that he has laid down, in the way that he has prescribed. It's not a secret. He hasn't kept it secret. He has revealed the way that he is to be worshipped. And therefore, this was a clear breach of these commandments to the Jews who knew the law. And therefore, it was crystal clear. Here was a clash, a real clash of cultures, you might say. Here was Nebuchadnezzar wanting to promote himself and for people to bow down to this image that he'd made. And here was three individuals who would not. I want us to notice under this heading, friends, something that's quite remarkable. There was no protesting by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The command had gone out. Nebuchadnezzar gathered all the people with power, all the people with authority and influence, the magistrates, the sheriffs, all those who ruled under him. He gathered all of them together, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gathered with them. There was no deputation. There was no protest made to the king. We're not going to do this. No representation made whatsoever. No complaint. Never raised any kind of opposition. They went along. Now, I'm not against people protesting. There's a place for it. There's a time for it. 
But here we have what is before us is clearly they were determined that they were not going to bow the knee. And Nebuchadnezzar was just as determined that they would burn, that they would bow or they would burn. There was no hope of any kind of negotiated settlement here. None whatsoever. The two parties involved were crystal clear. They were not going to commit idolatry. And Nebuchadnezzar was not going to, in any sense, back down. So there was no need for any protesting. They were going to leave their protesting to the actual occasion. Here were people who were fixed, firm, resolute, unbending. It didn't matter the consequences. The law was clear. They weren't going to tamper with it. They were simply going to obey it. I mean God's law. That's what they were going to do. Come what may. There's a lesson. There's a lesson here. Because many start well. And many make many protests at the beginning. But afterwards, there's compromise. What am I referring to? I'm referring to things like the protests that were held by various churches and denominations when, for instance, civil partnerships were first muted. How many churches and denominations said, we're having none of this? And quite right. We're not going to have this. This is against God's law. What has happened? Many who made protests capitulated. The same could be said for same-sex marriage. Many churches were rightly horrified. What? A man? Going to marry a man? Never. It's totally against the law of God. The Bible's clear. It's crystal clear. Any child could read it and would come to the same conclusion that this is wrong. Where are they? They're embracing it. And what, what do you find? They're not only going to embrace it, but they will, sort, they will penalize those who will not embrace it. Not only accepting it, but promoting it, despite all their protestations at the beginning. We could go on. What about this lark, transgenderism, this utter foolishness? God created man, male and female, after his own image, the Bible teaches us. We cannot change our biological sex. Oh, it's possible, friends, to change our legal sex. Yes, we acknowledge that. The law will allow that. But God's law doesn't allow it. We're either male or female. And the Lord, our God, our Creator, has determined our sex. We don't determine it. But we find those who made protests against it 
They're embracing it, accepting it. What do we find also? The, the state is interfering in the life of the family. Family is what God has instituted. A man, a woman, children, if the Lord grants that to them, and there they have autonomy. They are to bring their children up in the, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and sometimes it will be required of them to discipline their children. We've all had it, and we've all rejoiced that our, our parents did it. But today, what happens? The state is interfering where it should not interfere. It's now a criminal offense to physically discipline children. This is, again, the state encroaching into areas of the life that they have no right to do. There was, of course, a, an outcry against it. Now, what happens, despite all the protestations? We could think of how, how society has caused us to ignore the Lord's day. This is the Lord's day. This is the day when Jesus rose victorious over the grave. This is the day when the Holy Spirit came. This is the day that God has given to every man, woman, and child in order for their, their physical, their mental, and their spiritual well-being. Yet society is out and out against the Lord's day, and society wants us to forget about the Lord's day. And we feel sorry for people who are growing up today, and they're looking for a career, how many people can follow careers or who can't follow a career because they would be required to work on the Lord's day when it's not necessary? There is nothing wrong in working in a shop, for instance. It may be a manual task, but there's nothing wrong. It's a lawful, legitimate source of employment and income for any man or woman. But who can really do that today because they're the demands that we've been placed upon a Christian to work on the Lord's day? And you could go through many, many other occupations. And this is society seeking to place their terms, their conditions, their standards, their principles upon the people of God. These individuals were facing the same thing. And if you look at their lives, friends, they had several things or several points that would mitigate should they obey the command there are several things that we could bring to mind that would mitigate them should they actually wish to obey the command. Several things that would help them, would ease their conscience. 
What are they, you might well say? Well, one or two of them. This commandment was not asking them to embrace idolatry full stop. This was a a one-time occasion. They were not asked to totally embrace idolatry. It was for one time, a one occasion, at the dedication of the image. This would only happen once, like an opening ceremony or an unveiling, as people do today when they unveil a statue for some reason. What is, it happens once. People gather and it happens once. This is what was going to happen here. And therefore, they might have said to themselves, well, it's only one occasion. But no, they cast that aside. And they were not asked to abandon the worship of God totally. They were not asked to stop worshiping Jehovah and to worship this image. They could worship this image for once or bow down to this image for once and still continue to worship the Lord their God. And could they not have said to themselves, well, we can do this and then we can repent? Many people think of that. They can do this and then they can repent and it's okay. But no, not for them. Could they not have said to themselves, well, here we are. The king has absolute authority and we're not just subjects. We are captives. We have been taken from our land into a foreign land by a despotic king who has absolute power and sway over us. Surely then it's not too bad for us to do this on one occasion. There are other things also. The king had been good to them. He had highly favored them. He had fed them, clothed them educated them. He had done many good things for them. Is it too much to ask to do this on one occasion? They could also have said, well, if we do this, we'll not only save our lives, but we'll be able to serve the other Jews in captivity. Here we are. We're in Babylon at the moment. We're governors. We're looking after the affairs of Babylon, and no doubt they would be looking out after the affairs of the Jews. And the Jews would be well dealt with under their, their care. But if they're not going to bow down, they would be put in the fire. They would be burnt. And any good that they could do would be burnt up. And they could well have said to themselves, well, we will. We'll do it in order that we might continue to serve our brethren in captivity. They discounted all of these things, friends. Why? Because the glory of God. That's why. They were going to serve God, and they believed that God would be able to deliver them. They say, yes, he will deliver us, but if he will not deliver us, it doesn't matter. We're still going to do it. Why? Because it is wrong. That's why. Some might say, as they did say of the Apostle Paul, let us do evil 
that good may come. But not for them. Let us do good regardless of what comes. We'll leave the, the outcome to the living God. We'll put ourselves under him and under his authority, and he'll do as he wishes with us. That was their mentality. And here their faith grew in this time of trial. And it brought glory to the great God of heaven. You see, they were not serving God just to boost their income or their prestige. They were not just serving God for the good times. They were serving God because it was right. And there are people today who will serve God and follow God as long as it helps them, as long as they're wealthy, as long as they're healthy, as long as things go right in their lives, then they'll identify themselves with God. But when the trial comes and when things are turned upside down and their life is not as good as it should be, in their estimation, they'll turn their backs. Why? Because they're only serving God for temporal blessings. Maybe we're in that category ourselves. Is that true? Not for them. Come what may. It doesn't matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, or he and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, verse 18, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They were prepared to die. Why? Because they knew that even in death, God would deliver them. Death was not the end to them. They knew there was life after death. And they knew that Nebuchadnezzar could destroy the body, but he couldn't destroy the soul. He was powerless. And notice, too, here, friends, they were on their own. On their own. We're told everyone else bowed down but they stood tall. This is a day for us to do exactly the same. In these testing times, may people know whose we are and whom we serve. And may our faith be rooted and grounded not in our faith, but in the object of our faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were fixed and focused upon their great God. Their faith was strong, yes, but it wasn't their faith that saved them. It was their God who delivered them. 
Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were severely tested. Beyond what we are likely to be tested, but they did not fail because their faith was rested upon their God. Where is your faith today? Because you will have faith. Where is it? Or what is it on? Is probably a more accurate question. Where is your faith? What are you believing in? Is it yourself? Or is it Jesus Christ who suffered and died and rose again? That's where we, we are to have our faith in. In these testing times, we are to have it in him and in him alone and what he has done. That's our only hope. And that hope is for you today. And that hope can be found only in Christ. And that's why we proclaim him to you, that you might come unto him and have the gift of eternal life and be reconciled to God and be able to stand in testing times. Amen. And may the Lord be pleased to bless his word to us. Let us pray together.